Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, this is Steve. Jumping in before we start our deep dive on Reservoir Dogs with a quick warning. On The Cinephiles, we've often gone back and forth about whether or not to include audio from a film which contains offensive language, particularly racial slurs. On the one hand, we don't believe in censoring artists. On the other hand, we know that some of this language can be disturbing to hear. In the end, we decided that since this is the season of Tarantino on The Cinephiles, we have a responsibility to present his work the way he intended it, and that means letting his characters speak for themselves, even when we really, really dislike what they have to say. And so now, we are very pleased to bring you, in all its controversial glory, Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. I mean, I can say I definitely didn't do it because I know what I did or I didn't do, but I cannot definitely say that about anybody else because I don't definitely know. For all I know, you're the rat. For all I know, you're the fucking rat! Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California, voiceover guy as well, and excited to be diving into our first movie in our season of Quentin Tarantino year with Reservoir Dogs, and especially what- with our guest. Yeah. That's right. We have a fantastic guest. We are welcoming back to our microphones writer and producer, writer, screenwriter of American History X. He wrote SWAT, Get Carter, and he is David McKenna. Welcome back to the Cinephiles. Thank you, Steve. Good to see you, John. It's awesome to be here once again. <laughs> well, and the movie we're digging into is definitely awesome. I know it was a huge influence on all of us, and that is Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And normally, my first question would be, how did you come to this film? But actually, all three of us, this was all our first Quentin Tarantino experience. And we all answered that question in our previous episode in, on the life and films of Quentin Tarantino. So what I guess I will ask instead is, how has this movie evolved for you over the years? What do you think, John? Well, for me, I tell you what, it's funny. It's, it's like kind of when we did a One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest last the other a few weeks ago. Like I was on McMurphy's side when I was younger, and and as I got older and rewatching it for the show, um, I started to understand Nurse Ratchet's point of view a little bit, which is a bit crazy for me. And the same thing kind of happened this time around, where I really dialed into the fact that these guys are criminals, as cool as they may seem, as as uh, as awesome as this dialogue is, and it's great to remember some of the great lines that Tarantino has in this uh, film. These guys are criminals, and they've probably done pretty serious shit to people throughout their lives. So I caught myself, every time I was feeling sympathetic towards one of them, I caught myself going, hey, hey, these guys are criminals. They would shoot you in the face to get you out of the way if they were stealing diamonds or whatever. So turn that down a little bit. Um, so it was, it was a different point of view in terms of how cool I thought they were when I was in my 20s. And now looking at it differently, I was able to sit back and appreciate the dialogue so much more. 
Tarantino's framing here and really come away, not like not like Citizen Kane, right, with Orson Welles. That's one of the greatest films ever made, but marveling at what an incredible first feature this is. And for a lot of people, I think it's still their closet favorite Quentin Tarantino movie, even if the other films are much more expertly done. This one still holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts. And I felt that all over again watching it this time around. It's funny. Every year, John, the outlaw becomes more and more the man. It's, <laughs> it's sad to watch. I know. I know. Well, you know, you can't shoot guns forever, man. You know, <laughs> even Tom Brady retires <laughs> more than once, apparently. <laughs> D- David, has this yes, movie changed for you as you've watched it and as you've changed? Well, the great thing about it is no. Um, it's still the most pivotal movie of my career, unequivocally. Uh, the movie changed my life. I was watching also, coincidentally, I was watching something on Damon. I don't remember exactly what it was. It was online. It like it's amazing how on YouTube they just know exactly who you are and so they'll pop up something. Something from Edward Norton for Letterman being on Edward Norton popped up. Somehow they know I write wrote American History X. So <laughs> Norton pops up and uh and then Damon pops up and it probably was because of Reservoir Dogs. Anyway, Damon is talking about when he was writing Go to a Hunting and boom, what does he quote? Reservoir Dogs. Hey, let's write a movie that we could shoot ourselves for a million dollars that we could star in. And so, you know, Damon and Affleck, when they were doing Goodwill Hunting, they were seriously thinking about Reservoir Dogs in the back of their head. I think a lot of filmmakers were. I certainly was when I was writing American History X because I was writing American History X right around the time they were doing Goodwill Hunting. And, you know, we've shared those experiences at the same time. So this this movie really was sort of a turning point for us old for us old geezers, um, you know, who were in their young, uh, sprawling twenties and uh, looking to really sort of emerge on the scene. It was really uh, the pivotal movie. It, it really was. It is such a transformative moment for me too. This is right before I head down to go to film school. I went to film school in '94. So like, this was one of those, oh, you can do it. Like you can make an independent film that's edgy and interesting. So yeah, it's a huge film. Um, I should say that this is also a film that, wait, 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 wait. You you always seem to get, try to get away with this kind of nonsense lately, Steve. What is you, what was your reaction watching (laughs) it this time after all this? You don't get to put us out on the wire here and you don't get to climb out with us. So what was your reaction watching it again after all this time? Are you becoming the man as well? Or what, what was your feeling when you watched it again? Well, clearly you are because you're laying down the law here and keeping <laughs> me straight. So, so you're absolutely right. I didn't mean to avoid the question, but I clearly had. It's funny. I react to it in so many ways exactly the same, except that I would say just – I think what hit you hit me was in particular a couple of moments with Keitel and Buscemi and in a couple of moments like when he's sitting in the car with Mr. Orange talking about the plan that I went, oh, yeah, this is, this is, I might like these guys, but these are bad guys. Yeah, same reaction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and rewatching the torture scene, the fact that they call him a psychopath, right? You don't really kind of get it. 
even when you're watching in your 20s, because it's like it's such a cool scene, a crazy scene. And it's like, holy shit, he's cutting a dude's ear off, pouring gas on him. And Matson does such a great job with that role. He's, he's the epitome of cool. He's Steve McQueen cool in that movie, man. And Lee Marvin cool even when he makes that comparison. But when you're watching it now, you really dial into the ferocity of what this must be like. And certainly our narrative has changed about police, about off cops, about what goes on behind the scenes. So the narrative feels completely different than it did when we watched in the in the early 90s than it does now. So there were so many elements of that running through this as well uh, for me, just to add on to what you said. The thing is, is they don't show the robbery in there, but you get get a sense of how bad they are. And this is the brilliance of Tarantino. And when we get to it is when he says, you know, how old do you think that black girl was? 19, you know, and it's so unveiling. It's almost like you, you saw, you know, the scene, Yeah, you know, what happened inside that robbery, you know, you don't even need to show up because he unveils it through dialogue and he paints such a vivid picture. Yeah. And that is, and yeah, they are bad dudes, but you know, when, when, Kaitel says that one line, it says everything you need to know about Madsen, you know, I mean, yeah, how yeah. bad he was. Yeah. <laughs> and even between Buscemi and Kaitel, when he says, did, did you shoot any, did you shoot any, did you shoot anybody? Right. He's like, just cop. <laughs> no, okay. No, no real, real people. people. No realize <laughs> it's like, they're not real human beings. Do you know what I'm, there's, there's that thing that's just bubbling under the surface. And I mean, it was just, I know we got to get into it, Steve yeah. and, and uh, David, but it was just such a, such a great, thing to remember what a great script this was and still is and what a fantastic performance i mean fantastic performance is that we get from all of these actors Kaitel being the senior of them uh, other than of course um lawrence i forget his name Tierney. like lawrence yeah Tierney. Uh, lawrence Tierney, yeah uh but all the other young actors seeing all of them you know still kind of like at that beginning point of their their abilities and stuff it's just such a great uh, experience to see it all over again right it really is and uh we should say that uh, as always there would be no cinephiles without our incredible supporters on patreon and as we do every once in a while and i think we'd like to do it much more often is we put out to our patrons what their questions about reservoir dogs are and we're going to answer those as we go along as they come up and we got some fantastic questions from our supporters on patreon uh here's a bit of pre-production quentin tarantino and Every time I hear these things like this, they always irritate me. Wrote the screenplay in three weeks. <laughs> it's just like, oh, man, <laughs> it's rough. Uh, and he's inspired. The biggest movie he's inspired by is Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, which mm-hmm. is a movie I really like a lot. John, I think you like it less, in, if I remember correctly. Only because it's the beginning of Kubrick, but I do like right. the movie. It's just a little dated when you see it, for sure. I agree. And, and uh, also 1952's Kansas City Confidential and another film in 1955 called The Big Combo. This is the kind of stuff he wanted to make. And he was initially, the plan was, he's going to make it for 30 grand and he's going to shoot it on 16 millimeter black and white and he is going to play Mr. Pink. <laughs> and there's an alternate reality where he does that, I think. Mm. And maybe we never hear of Quentin Tarantino. And Lawrence Bender reads the script. He says that it wasn't formatted correctly because Tarantino didn't know what he's doing. Um, But he saw that this was an incredible script. And it's just so funny to all the initial meetings that in meeting Lawrence Bender and early stuff, Tarantino didn't have a car. So he's taking the bus to his meetings at this time in his life. 
And it's really Harvey Keitel that gives this whole thing legitimacy. And this is how it comes about. So Keitel was always the number one on the wish list for Mr. White. And Lawrence Bender is taking acting classes and Lawrence Bender's teacher in his acting class is married to someone who knew Harvey Keitel. (laughs) So Bender takes Tarantino's script, gives it to his teacher who reads it, says, okay, this is a good script, gives it to his wife who reads it and says, I think I am going to send it to Harvey Keitel. She does. Lawrence Bender gets a call from Keitel three days later saying, I want to produce this movie but you're you guys are the boss. I just want to be an actor, but I want to help make this thing happen. Wow! Right? That's interesting. That's that's how it happens. It's just it's you get that one big yes, and boom. Um, that's another story for me. But that's how it happened for me too. And so yeah. that's what happens. The 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 element of that one person taking that chance or seeing something in you is so important. And Quentin Tarantino describes that call from Harvey Keitel as the beginning of his life. That makes sense. So great. So great. So then Harvey, and it's funny because we got two Harveys involved in this, and this is Harvey Keitel flies them to New York to hold casting sessions in New York. And because Keitel is involved, this is like every Broadway star, every off-Broadway actor, all the New York actors are coming into audition uh, and Keitel is there acting with all of them in these casting sessions. Mm. Yeah. Bender says that it was like casting a Broadway play and they could have cast the touring company, the European company, all of them all at the same time. They had such <laughs> riches. And one of the people who came in is interesting. And it is our first uh, Patreon question, which comes from Carter Forbes, who says, I have heard that Tarantino wanted John Cryer for Mr. Pink. Do you think that would have allowed him to push his career past two and a half men? I love Buscemi in the role, but actually think that casting Cryer could have been very interesting. No. (laughs) Wrong choice. Don't get me wrong. I love John Cryer. I think he's great for what he does, but in no way do I think he has that thing that Buscemi has. In, In no way do I think that is that Buscemi has a harder edge to him that I don't think I've ever seen in a John Cryer performance. Um, and I just like, I just think his energy is perfect for the role. Sorry, I don't mean to just jump in and answer, but yeah, it's ideal. Yeah, I mean, second that emotion. I mean, that is, Buscemi is, I mean, right when the very opening frame of uh, the waiter scene, you know, the, yeah. scene. I mean, come on, do you think John Cryer is going to pull that off? No. Not not only do I, I can't, there's no one else in this who should be Mr. Pink than, than Buscemi. He is, not only does, I think he, uh, who's, I was about to say he's my favorite in the movie, but then I can't say that. I actually can't, I'm incapable of picking a favorite. I almost but, said it too, Steve. But, I almost I said mean, it too, and you can't do it. They're, they're all so great, but man, he's he he makes so much of the movie for me. And he also drives the movie in a lot of places, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think this makes Buscemi. I mean, oh yeah, this is not that he hadn't done stuff before, but this is huge for him. Yeah, I also think this is an interesting time in Harvey Keitel's career because from when he gets removed from Apocalypse Now, all through the eighties, he's kind of not persona non grata, but he's not really doing much that is of note or known. And it isn't until the nineties begins that he all of a sudden starts to become an actor in demand. So I imagine 
you know, him producing the, reading the script, this excited him maybe like it did when he worked with Scorsese on Mean Streets. Like he knew immediately when he read this script, oh, this is like going back to the beginning again. And I might need this in my career. No, I, I don't know Harvey Keitel, uh, you know, at all. For, I, I, I one at but I imagine, because I'm looking through his entire um, uh, IMDb here through the 80s, and there's not really much of no, other than Last Temptation of Christ. And even that was a chance, but that was Scorsese asking him to come back and do a movie. But it isn't until the early 90s that he starts to pick back up again with things like Thelma and Louise and Bugsy. And then Reservoir Dogs is right there as well. Bad Lieutenant. So, yeah, bad lieutenant, exactly. So it's just a, and then pian- the piano. So it's the just piano. fascinating to see where he was at through the 80s. And so I think this may have been part of his kind of like return back to discovering who he was again and re embracing, you know, um, showing what he could do in front of the camera again in, in a fair that was a little more challenging. Well, and what just occurred to me, I mean, this is the guy that was at the ground floor of Martin Scorsese's mm-hmm. career, mm-hmm. and maybe he saw something here. And I think Scorsese and Tarantino, they're really, really different, but they also have a bunch of stuff in common. Yeah. And maybe he saw something that he recognized here of like, oh, I think this might be the beginning of something special. Totally. Um, yes. Uh, so initially, they didn't really think they were going to be able to set it up for Tarantino to actually direct it. And so they bring in Monty Hellman, who thinks he's going to direct the script and sets up a meeting with uh, Bender and Tarantino. Tarantino, of course, has to take the bus from his mom's house to get the, do they have a meeting at uh, David? I don't know if you remember this place. I think this is closed before you showed up, John, but do you remember CC Brown's hot fudge Sundays in Hollywood? God, no, no. It was been there for like a hundred years. It was yeah. amazing. And it was just when Hollywood Boulevard, it was, it was right near the Chinese. And it was when Hollywood Boulevard was just a dump at the time. Yeah. And it, it went out of business. But anyway, they met there. Tarantino, Tarantino didn't insist on directing it. Not in the beginning because they didn't know where the money was come from, going to come from and if they could risk it. And basically Tarantino shows up the, at the meeting and says, look, I hate to waste your time, but something's happened that's changed things for me which is that he had just sold the option on true romance and suddenly he had 50 grand in his pocket and he went, I'm going to hold out to direct this movie. (laughs) Great. Um, and, and what's, and Monty Hellman, which is cool said after talking to Tarantino, and it seems like at this era, he had this effect on a lot of people is he went, I believe in you. I see the passion. I see the talent. I see all of that. And let me help you to set up a deal. And so Monty Hellman goes around and tries to set up various deals and Tarantino turns them down over and over again. Wow. One of the, one of the ones was we'll give you 1.6 million to make the movie. The only change we want is that we want this to be like the sting and actually nobody's dead and it's all a con. Oh my God. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's just we so want you to mainstream it. That's what we want you to do. Yeah. Another one, again, money is ready. We're ready to write the check, but my boyfriend's going to play Mr. Bond, Mr. Blonde. <laughs> Fucking <And>, Hollywood. <laughs> yep. And it's uh, it's it's Richard Gladstein at Live Entertainment, who's the one who finally puts them into the position to make the movie. They put the budget together. And this is, you know, to say this is a hot script is an understatement. Like mm-hmm. all, everybody wanted to do it. The uh, casting director, by the way, is Ronnie Yeskel, who Karen worked with uh, multiple times. Nice. And they do full rehearsals and table reads. 
And it seems like from the very beginning, and this doesn't surprise me at all, Tarantino knew what he wanted for everything. Yeah. This was in his head. He knew what he wanted to do. Hmm. And they have a big, huge dinner. I think it's the day before they start shooting. It's at Harvey Keitel's house. And Quentin Tarantino looks around at the room, all the cast hanging out, laughing and joking and eating and drinking, and goes, all I have to do is keep this movie in focus. I could put them in white shirts against a white wall. And with this cast, this is going to be a great movie. Mm. Driving home, he said that is the happiest he had ever been in his entire life. I'm sure. Oh, my God. Did you get this? Is this in his book, Steve? Uh, some of this is from the books. Some of this is from the, the disc and the behind the scenes stuff. And some of it is from Wikipedia. Wonderful Wikipedia. <laughs> very useful. Would you like to get into Reservoir Dogs? Let's do it. Let's go. We start with black and we hear. Let me tell you what like a virgin's about. It's all about a girl who takes a guy with a big dick. Entire song. It's a metaphor for big dicks. How do you feel about this as the opening of your movie? <laughs> I just love when you over blackness, you hear somebody talking and it's that line or any other fantastic line of, you know, exactly what you're going to be getting from this movie, unapologetic, craziness, creative, insane. Um, you know, you don't really know what's happening, but then, as the story unfolds, you know, you probably don't pick up this story until, you know, the third time you see it, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, when he, when he references, uh, 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 Charles Bronson and the great escape and all sorts of stuff, you know, and, um, uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's just really his signature and it's just yeah. beautiful. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously he becomes legendary for his Top Gun monologue about the volleyball scene. And then, <laughs> you know, the, the Superman stuff in Kill Bill Volume 2. So this is a clearly just a just to let you know, not only is this a foreshadowing of what the film is going to be like in terms of there's no there's no brakes on this on this car. Um, his career, it's it's a whole uh, just showing you that this is Quentin Tarantino in his entire career. There are no breaks. There are no lines he's not willing to cross so I, I love that it starts out this way plus again it's the early 90s right we're through the 80s and the me generation and the bubblegum pop uh you know neon all that kind of stuff people want realism and that spread out through all forms of entertainment in the 90s whether it was television with with you know with hill street blues kind of the opening salvo but then here comes nypd blue just a couple of years later in pro wrestling all the the idea of dressing up like Hulk Hogan or any of that, all that stuff was done. They wanted real people uh, conveying real uh, feelings and emotions and all of that. And so this just kind of it just was so smartly at the right time of capturing what the pop culture was moving towards, you know, and wanting yeah. to see and just opening, talking about Madonna and Madonna is still Madonna in the early nineties. So the fact that you're starting out and you're analyzing one of her big hits in such a unique way that is, I know, I know I'm going to get too deep on this, but it's also smartly the way that he's, he's cracking the eighties in half and essentially announcing the nineties, you know, this beautiful song that you loved like a virgin that was really sweet. And she rolled around on the, on the ground at the video music awards and people were so outraged by it. Madonna is actually a cutting edge person and you need to understand what the fucker songs are really about. And he's just dropping <laughs> knowledge. 
You know what I'm saying? Because, yeah. you know, Madonna was everybody, oh, borderline. Oh, so the shooting sweet. Oh, but like she was a trailblazer and she wanted respect. And she's a New she's a not a New Yorker. Obviously she's from Michigan, but she has that New York edge from when she lived there. And so I think Tarantino is doing her a solid by absolutely analyzing the song in such a strong way and having everyone else bounce off of it with their different opinions about her career. And you know how Tarantino learned about this? It, it's on Madonna's Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> so, bang. <laughs> so here's what, here's what I picture is like the, the, the first moments of a movie, particularly at the lights have just gone down, the trailers have played and you're kind of settling in and there's some usually kind of a, a ramp up time, you know, maybe, maybe they have a little, title maybe you see like the studio you see some other stuff and the, you get eased into this movie and i'm picturing there has been no tarantino you've never seen a tarantino movie you're sitting in the theater it's gone dark and the first thing you hear is it's about a girl that digs a guy with a big dick and you must have gone wait what what did they yes. just and you look over to your girlfriend and go like did he just say the thing that i thought that he, what's happening you know because it is such a bold you know statement to start your movie with and then we come in and this opening scene is shot in a way that movies just weren't shot which is and the the dp by the way is andre sakula and this is early in his career and he did not want to do this this is like the camera is circling around and this is what tarantino wanted he just wanted it to circle he wanted sakula to figure out the rhythm and the timing and then we have different lens lengths so that sometimes you're close sometimes you're farther away and this is really, by the way, throwing it all at the editor. This is saying, you're going to figure this out. And the editor is Sally Menke. And this is you know, this is one of the great partnerships in Hollywood. And so tragic that she passed away in this hiking thing in Griffith Park, I think. And she meets Tarantino. She sees the script. She absolutely loves the script. She and Tarantino hit it off immediately. She thought this was the most exciting thing she'd ever done. She had mostly done documentaries. And what she said is that cutting documentaries was the best training for editing features, particularly editing Tarantino. And having cut documentaries, I I totally agree because you have to be so creative. And the way this scene is put together is absolutely fantastic. It's genius. It's genius. And getting back to your point, though, Steve, <clears throat> guys, if you have not seen this movie before, don't take your girlfriend to it. <laughs> I love that the scariest guy in the movie, Mr. Blonde, the psychopath, yeah. has this very sensitive interpretation, has listened closely to the Madonna songs. Marty, it's about a girl who's very vulnerable. She's been fucked over a few times, and then uh, she meets a guy. Who's whoa, 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 whoa! Time out, Green. Oh. Tell that fucking bullshit to the tourists. So we're gonna get this conversation about Madonna and her songs, and this is something that Tarantino learned from Elmore Leonard, who said, "Gangsters don't sit around talking about plot. They talk about the shit we all talk about. The most outrageous stuff is the stuff that rings most true." Mm. I think that is that is great advice, and I just love. I love them all weighing in on true blue versus like a virgin. We're, we know that these are hardened criminals and this would be a violent crime movie. And yet we start off with them talking about none of that. Another thing, though, quickly is <clears throat> their attire. 
I mean, their attire at the time was something that we had never seen before. I mean, what is going on here? We don't know what's happening, but these guys are all dressed in black jackets and black ties. Is it a funeral? We don't know what the hell is going on, which adds even more intrigue. It's almost like it's almost Beatles-esque, right? They all wore the same outfit back when they were first starting out in the 1960s. And it's probably so that if you ever like if they go, well, it's, you know, um, what do they look like? Well, they were wearing ties. And can you tell what they I don't remember what their face is, but they were wearing the same clothes. So maybe in sub, some subconscious way, it makes it harder to pick you out of a lineup if you're all that's wearing a, the same That's a great outfit. point. Never thought about yep. it like that. Yep. It's like Chris Penn wearing that damn windbreaker, man. Oh, that's that's so key. <laughs> like a virgin's not about some sensitive girl who meets a nice fella. That's what True Blue's about. No, granted, no argument about that. And while all of that is going on, we hear, who the fuck is Toby? <laughs> Wait, Eddie Bunker. Yeah. You know, Eddie Bunker's line, he goes, I used to like the early stuff, borderline. Once you get off into that Papa Don't Preach phase, I tuned out. <laughs> oh, am I getting it's, ahead of the phase? <laughs> no, it's perfect. I, yeah. I, well, and he's, and you look at that guy, and that guy just is, this is a hardened fucking criminal mm. in real life. And he, and he is in fact a hardened criminal. Yeah. <laughs> he ran away from home when he was five. His first conviction was at 14. He was in and out of jail for bank robbery, drug dealing, extortion, armed robbery. But then he also, this guy, I mean, I, is there a movie? I don't know if there's ever been a movie about this guy, but he's well, also he's written a ton of books. He's written, huh. he's written. Yeah. And he hung out with Aldous Huxley, Tennessee Williams, and he met William Randolph Hearst at Sam Sin- San Simeon. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. Wrote his first book while an inmate in San Quentin. Wow. James Elroy called his first book the best crime novel of the last 50 years. Wow. Yep. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then we're still hearing, Oh, Toby's that little Chinese girl. <laughs> But this is, listen, this is, I, I sat here and watched this scene three times because you know how my brain works, Steve, and, and, and David, I'm sure you've had a sample of it. But like, I, I, there is so much going on in letting you know the hierarchy of this, of this group of guys. It's brilliant. I mean, Tarantino, either accidentally or on purpose, is giving us all we need to know about these guys before he shows us everything they're about to experience and we're going to experience as with them. And you're seeing the hierarchy. And by that, I mean, Mr. Brown is the one who's spewing bullshit out of his mouth. He's Mr. Brown. So he's talking all this shit about Madonna and all this. Kind of, it's, his, it's his thought. Blonde is coming in with this occasional like thing. No, it's about this. It's about that. So you're immediately like, oh, I kind of like this guy. He, he's a little romantic and blah, blah, blah. So he's going to shock you a little later with the psychopath stuff. Later and then with uh, with uh, Harvey Keitel and the the book with um, uh, with Lawrence Bender when he takes the book from that's I mean the fact he's the only guy at the table that would snatch the book out of Lawrence Bender's hand the only guy so it shows you again the hierarchy here and then Mister Blonde is the one that says hey you want me to shoot this guy so clearly there's a stronger relationship he has with uh, uh, Bender's character. Uh, so he's able to Bender. see that. It's sorry, it's Lawrence Tierney. Oh, sorry, Tierney. Sorry, yeah. God, yeah. sorry, guys. Yeah. Jonathan Bender is the producer. Sorry about that. Tierney's character. So he's having this back and forth. So you're seeing all of that. And then later when we get to the whole um, – uh, when when Chris Penn starts talking about uh, Madonna himself, Buscemi tries to weigh in 
And Chris Penn could care two shits about what he's saying because that's how he views it. And you see this all happening throughout in the relationship. And Eddie Bunker chiming in with the line that David just said is perfect because he's the old guy at the table aside from Tierney. <laughs> because to him, he probably has a daughter like Madonna who was listening to Papa Don't Preach and was like, fuck you, dad. I don't want you in my life anymore. Let's accept me exactly who I am. So naturally, he'd be bitter about that phase of Madonna, not the you know uh, beginning phase of Madonna, which was all like, like me, I'm cool. I, I want to be your girlfriend. When she started speaking her actual truth, of course, the old guy dips out on it. So there's so much about the personalities that are coming through. And then Tim Roth is just kind of, you know, sitting next to Harvey Keitel and occasionally chiming in with stuff. But he's he's just playing the guy who's not going to make too much trouble, not going to drag too much attention. Right. He's an undercover cop. So he's just yeah. rolling with what's happening. So there is so much that's going on here. If you're looking at the faces, if you're looking at the reactions to each other, and as an actor, that's how I watch things, you know, who is doing what, what face are they making? And I just think, as you said, Steve, the editing and the shots here by the cinematographer are just so perfect to give you everything you need to know subconsciously before we jump into the more chaotic scenes of the movie. You know what Tarantino is in this scene? He's purely a stenographer. <laughs> he's so he's so in touch with his characters. That's great. That He's literally transcribing this he this table scene in his head, you know. So there's a couple there's a story going on, you know. This and it's purely he knows the Lawrence Tierney character so much that he goes Toby, Toby Wong, Toby <laughs> Chu, all that stuff. I mean, who does that? You know, nobody does that except if you're a stenographer and you're so freaking brilliant at writing dialogue that in so in touch with their characters that you don't, you know, I mean, a studio executive could say, what the hell does this mean? Let's cut this. This has no relevance to the scene. <laughs> well, in actuality, it does, yeah. you know, it's, it's revealing of character, you know, and you're, and it's going to take you into a different part in two seconds with Kaitel, which is hilarious. It pays, it pays dividends down the road, David, because clearly he's losing his memory. He's old, and so he's not yeah. remembering these things, not remembering these people in his life. And later, when he shows up at the warehouse, what does he say? I should have had my head examined. I don't know why I went through with this with a guy <laughs> I didn't fully vet. Why? Because right. he's slipping, because he's old. So they're giving you the little things in the characters just from the opening scene. It's genius. Yep. So I love everything all of you said. John, I don't think you're overanalyzing this at all. I okay. think that's. I think you're 100% right. And I also think... It just occurred to me as you guys were talking that, you know, there's the, the sixth sense phenomena where you see the movie once and then you get the twist and then you want to watch the movie again. Right. This is the same thing is that at, when you see this movie the first time, they're just some people you don't know who they are talking about Madonna and address books and stuff like that. And it's fun. And you're charmed by the wittiness of the dialogue and the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the performances. Then you watch the whole movie and find out one of them's an undercover cop. One of them's a psychopath. They have different relationships that we don't know exactly what they are to Lawrence Tierney's character and the fat nice guy Eddie's and all of that stuff. And so now you watch it a second time you go and you start to see these little like Michael Madsen going, do you want me to shoot him boss? Yeah. That takes on a whole other level of power when you see who that guy is. So I, I think there's tons of stuff here. Um, yeah, and you, going when you on. watch that, Steve, that's a great point. Like he's not kidding. No, he's not kidding. <laughs> when you're watching it the first time, you're like, Oh, that's funny. Cause he does a little, but he's actually not kidding. 
which is he would he probably wouldn't shoot him in this restaurant. No, but if Joe says to Mister Blonde to Vic Vega, "I need you to kill this guy," Vic Vega says, "Okay, yeah, without a hesitation." It's just it's more foreshadowing, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great point. So and then, (laughs) of course, uh, Tarantino has lost his place and now goes, "What the fuck was I talking about?" And look, I have to go through this monologue because it's just so well written and funny. He says, it's all about this Coos, who's a regular fuck machine. Now I'm talking morning, day, night, afternoon. Dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I mean, that it's I, I, I didn't talk exactly this way with my friends. I don't mean to say that. But this is like such great bantery, filthy talk. You know, this is this is total dude talk. This is yeah. absolute dude talk all around the table talking about a situation like this you know when the cameras aren't on when people aren't around you're just sitting around shooting the shit you know what i'm saying it's not maybe it's not quite as sexist or quite as racist but shooting the shit about this kind of stuff is the natural thing dudes dudes do when they're sitting around having a conversation with each other especially when they don't know each other right it's that kind of okay what is it you feel comfortable saying right now well and the other thing is this is heightened dialogue like this Mm -hmm. isn't natural speech it's in in the sense that david mamet isn't natural speech or aaron sorkin isn't natural speech it is a it is tarantino speech and and yet because rhythmically he's so good it sounds a hundred percent natural so one day she meets this john holmes motherfucker and it's like whoa baby i mean this cat is like charles bronson in the great escape he's digging tunnels (laughs) that's so funny and, and it's so funny because I love The Great Escape and I love Charles Bronson in The Great Escape. <laughs> so for me, that's just such a great reference. And in the, again, in the midst of this. Chew, Toby, chew. And then we get to his point. But when this cat fucks her, it hurts. It hurts just like it did the first time. You see, the pain is reminding a fuck machine what it was once like to be a virgin. Hence, like a virgin. Ooh. Let me. <laughs> Do you think this is a persuasive argument? Yeah, one hundred percent. One hundred percent. He makes great points. Excellent points. You know, Madonna must have commented on this at some point, right? <laughs> <laughs> there must be a comment on it. Oh yeah, there. She was drunk one night, and she came up to him, and she says, <laughs> "You know, you are so full of shit. Where'd you make this story up?" <laughs> and it's at this moment that Keitel takes the book from Lawrence Tierney. Stupid that fucking thing. Yeah, what the hell do you think you're doing? You're in my book. Bro. I'm sick of fucking hearing it, Joe. I'll give it back to you when we leave. John, to your point, I do think Mr. White is the only person that could do this. Absolutely. Wouldn't even think to. Oh, yeah. Past 15 minutes now, you've been droning on about names. Toby. 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 Toby Wong. Toby Wong, Toby Wong, Toby Chung, fucking Charlie Chan. We've got Madonna's big dick coming out of my left ear and Toby the Jet, I don't know what, coming out of my right. (laughs) (laughs) So we on the cinephiles do not endorse these racial slurs or this sexist rhetoric. We're merely, but look, this is a Tarantino movie. They're criminals. Yeah. This well, is how the criminals will talk. Well, and, and, and this is, you know, we talked about this throughout our episode on Tarantino in general. Mm. He is interested in titillating you with things that are offensive. 
yeah. things that are outside of the lines, things where we shouldn't be told, where polite society doesn't say this stuff. And it does make you laugh. I mean, just as the, the first line of the movie is shocking. He wants to shock you. He wants to titillate you. And it works. It's effective. And this was the early 90s. It's not it, It's not what it is today, you know. And um, I think that when we were watching this in the early 90s, um, we were laughing. I don't think it was offensive, you know, compared to, you know, if, you know, if you play that movie today to a lot of people, they're going to there's you're going to have a lot higher percentage of people being offended by it without question. Yeah, it goes. I'm trying to think of how to say this the right way is like these things that are being said are offensive. Mm-hmm. They are offensive things to say. If I was at a if I was sitting at this restaurant and guys I was sitting with were saying these things, I would be very uncomfortable. And I hope assuming that they weren't all armed criminals, that I would say something. (laughs) But I can also see that in a movie and be involved in the movie and not offended by the movie because the characters are saying offensive things. Mm. I'll put it that way. Um, And then there's more conversation about about K. Billy's Super Sons of the 70s and about... Yeah, the Vicki Lawrence conversation the night that they drove old Dixie down. And this is the one, this is the thing I was referencing, how you can see... Buscemi start to chime in and Chris Penn mm. could care less. And then it's and then we get um Mr. Blonde calling out Chris Penn for being an idiot for not knowing that it was Vicky Lawrence right. who killed uh who killed the guy, the husband in the in the song. And so again, a window into their relationship where he feels he can yep. go at this guy with a harder edge because because they're boys. And Lawrence Tierney gets up, he's gonna pay the bill and asks everyone to throw in for the tip about a buck a piece. <laughs> And very strongly, he says, And you, when I come back, I want my book. Sorry, it's my book now. Hey, I changed my mind. Shoot this piece of shit, will you? <laughs> so everyone's throwing in money, except Mr. Pink. Come on, throw in a buck. Uh-uh, I don't tip. You don't tip? No, I don't believe in it. So Quentin Tarantino really did want to play Mr. Pink. <laughs> and... So here was his plan. They'd do all the auditions, and then he had talked to Ronnie Yeskel, the casting director, and when it got done with all the the list, because you have a list of everyone who's coming in to read for the part, Ronnie was going to say, oh, we actually have one more late addition to the list, and Tarantino was going to get up and do his audition. That was uh, his plan. Uh, uh. So, so then Steve Buscemi comes in, and it's really obvious how he fits right into the ensemble. He reads with Keitel and he's kind of got, you know, so you do your first audition, maybe you do a callback and then you do maybe a chemistry read or something. And after he's done his first or second audition, Tarantino goes to Buscemi, pulls him aside and says, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I wrote this part for me. So if you want to get it, you're going to have to take it from me. You know, I'm not going to give it to you. You got to take it. And then Buscemi went in to that last audition and apparently he took it. So as much as I love the, all the Madonna stuff, I love the, the discussion of tipping. I think it's, it is a fantastic scene. Uh, Let me just get this straight. You don't ever tip, huh? I don't tip because society says I have to. All right. I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But I mean, it's tipping automatically. Uh, It's for the birds. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, let me ask this question. How do you gentlemen feel about tipping? Do you find uh, Mr. Pink's arguments persuasive here? No. Um, although his logic about the fact that's a, well, no, because I don't, because 
he compares the fast to the fast food people. He said, I used to work a minimum wage or whatever it was. But like waitresses were making $3 an hour at that time, which is way less than someone would make it like fucking McDonald's. So there's a reason you tip. It's because that's how they make up the difference in paying. I used to be a waiter. It's the worst fucking job. They make the difference in tips, which is why you're motivated to do well so you can make more money off of the tips because that's what because they pay you so low. So that's the element of this whole thing that I think is missing from this entire argument. Um, so that's why I don't think it's persuasive. But I appreciate his argument because I think it's inventive for his ideology. I, yes, I don't think he's I don't think Tarantino set out to make Mr. Pink persuasive. You know, I think that he just has his opinion and that's it and fucking deal with it. Um, I did wait tables for three years being a struggling writer. And uh, I actually liked waiting tables, believe it or not. It gave me time to write, you know, as opposed to having a full time job. Fair enough. Um, But uh, this is this is the scene. I mean, believe it or not, I think this is probably the most famous part of the movie, you know, especially if you're just seen it for the first time as opposed to us who've seen it 10 times, you know, but this whole diatribe about tipping, why is because almost all of us have waited tables before worked in a restaurant. We've been to a restaurant and we've dealt with bad waiters or good waiters or whatever. And so, you know, when I wrote a script, I wrote a script, I wrote a dark comedy called 10% about a waiter who kills people who tip 10%. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so I will not avoid answering my own question this time. And I will say, so first I would like to preface what I'm about to say by saying I'm an excellent tipper. I always tip very well. I believe in tipping very well in this country. I totally agree with Steve Buscemi, except for the fact that he doesn't tip because this is a terrible, awful, stupid, unfair, racist, sexist, and ageist system that is awful. Hmm. Is that and it's terrible on waiters is that they should get paid a a living wage that, you know, there's all these statistics about people get white people get tipped more. Young women get tipped more. Older waiters get tipped less like all that stuff. Plus, there are still there are still states in this country where uh, waiters, waitstaff get less than minimum wage because they expect the tips to make up for it. So they're making two fifty an hour, and so if nobody shows, what jobs are there where you where if the job if the restaurant isn't making money, isn't having customers that you don't get paid? That just doesn't make any sense. And I will tell you a per, my personal story, and this happened probably the same year that I saw Reservoir Dogs. So I was working as I, you mentioned before. I was worked at a copy store making copies, not coffee, but copies, and I was the delivery guy for a while. So there's one delivery I had where I was delivering a $1,500 copy job, which meant I was carrying probably 20 boxes of paper up three flights of stairs on a hundred degree day. So I did just one by one, walking up three flights of stairs, dropping off boxes again, again, again. They signed for their $1,500 job. And just as they're signing, their lunch order of Chinese food shows up. And I'm drenched in sweat, exhausted. And they hand that Chinese food guy five bucks. And I don't get anything. (laughs) And this is where I went. Tipping is stupid. It's so inconsistent. There's some people that work, do you know, you know, someone delivers a pizza, you give them a tip. Someone delivers your washing machine, maybe you don't. Like this is just, it's a ridiculous, horrible system. In Europe, they don't have it. I am totally on Team Steve Buscemi. But I repeat, I'm a very good tipper. I tip very well. I know people live on that. All right, that's my diatribe on tipping. Hey, this girl was nice. She was okay. She wasn't anything special. What's special? Take you in the back and suck your dick. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'd go over 12% for that. Shows you how that cheap nice Bunker, baby. <laughs> Look, I ordered coffee, right? Now, we've been here a long fucking time. She's only filled my cup three times. I mean, when I order coffee, I want it filled six times. <laughs> I love the callback to it later. It's like, you don't, you don't really need more coffee. But if you watch the scene again, you'll see him pick up his coffee cup twice during the scene to look for the waitress. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yes. That's great. You see him do it. And you're just like, this is fucking genius. This is why casting great act, smart actors are so great because there's so much they're doing in between the lines yeah. to give you the feeling of how, um, how real their characters are to them and how they're bringing them to life on, on camera. It's, just, it's so good. Well, and then we have a moment again, John, this is to your point about mm. how much we're building character here of Mr. White is the one person who stands up against adversity throughout mm. throughout this scene because he yes. stands up, he stands up to Lawrence Tierney, and now he gets genuinely upset and says, You don't have any idea what you're talking about. These people bust their ass. This is a hard job. So I was working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? Why not? They're serving you food. But no, society says, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over here. That's bullshit. <laughs> I agree with. Maybe. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you on the waiting stuff versus McDonald's. I think that personally, I think that jobs like McDonald's are sort of entry-level jobs for 16, 17, and 18-year-olds. And that when you're a waiter – those jobs are for like 21, 22, 23, 24 year, year olds. You're, you're giving pleasure of a dying experience. You're running them food. There's clearly a big difference between a McDonald's employee and a waiter at a nice restaurant where you want to be catered to. Mm. And so I think I disagree with you respectfully on this point, Steve. <laughs> Being a waiter myself but I think that there's sort of a graduation from McDonald's to waiting tables and then, you know, being a productive, uh, um, you know, worker in society. I would say, A, there are lots of people or older than 16 working McDonald's. I see people who yes, are in their 40s true. behind no, the counter yeah, all the I time. Know. I know. Um, but the, the second thing I'd say is if the point is that someone working at that nice restaurant should make more money than someone working at McDonald's, I 100 percent agree. I just disagree about the method of how they make the money. Right. I think that, yeah. I think it's just about the tipping. And then Mr. White pulls out some facts. Waitressing is the number one occupation for female non-college graduates in this country. It's the one job basically any woman can get and make a living on. The reason is because of their tips. I think Mr. White's mom was a waitress. <laughs> and I love that Fusemi takes it in. <laughs> Like, takes that information seriously and then goes, fuck all that. <laughs> yeah, because he actually did make sense. So he was like, fuck yeah. all that. No, I can't have that in my mind. I mean, it would appear that waitresses are one of the many groups the government fucks in the ass on a regular basis. I mean, if you show me a piece of paper that says the government shouldn't do that, I'll sign it. Put it to a vote, I'll vote for it. But what I won't do is play ball. It's a great speech. It it's is. Just yeah. really, it's well written. And, and, and we get so much. And, and, and here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a little spoiler in. I think Mr. Pink is the most professional of them all in this group and the person who most consistently keeps his eye on what's important throughout yeah. the whole movie. Yeah, for sure. Good point. Um, he's, more, he's more professional than Mr. White. 
Yeah, for he sure. is. Absolutely. He's convinced me. Give me my dollar back. <laughs> and that's when Joe shows up and says, who didn't throw in? And they call out Mr. Pink. Come on, you. Cough up a bucket, cheap bastard. I paid for your goddamn breakfast. All right. Since you pay for the breakfast, I'll put in. But normally I would never do this. And he throws his money in. <laughs> he, Joe gets the book back from Kaitel. I do think there was a mistake here, though. I think it's impossible when Lawrence Tierney looks mm. at the money, there's no way he could count who didn't throw in a buck. Yeah, 100%. You know? <laughs> that is the one problem with Tarantino's direction in this scene. Um, see, this is, you know what? I, I just went down from five to four and a half stars. <laughs> he, probably, he probably had Lawrence shoot it a couple of times, but Lawrence kept forgetting to wait a little bit and count the money. He was like, fuck. Right. <laughs> I can <laughs> see it. Wait, so, you didn't so, chip in. So we're about seven minutes into the movie and literally there's been no plot. Like we have right. no idea who these guys are. We don't know their relationships. We don't know what they're trying to do. All we've heard is, and yet we're completely involved in this movie. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the cinephiles new sponsor an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And then you hear the wonderful dulcet tones of Stephen Wright yeah. with... That was the Partridge family's doesn't somebody want to be wanted. That's inspired, inspired casting, I think. Yeah. Was Stephen Wright big at this time or was he... Oh, small? Yeah. yeah. No, he, he, he was big in the 80s, definitely. I don't remember yeah. seeing him in the 80s. I remember seeing him in the 90s. I remember him... I don't know. When did I see him? Because I, I had his cassette... If you haven't seen, for those listening, if you have not seen Stephen Wright on, go YouTube him. You know, I mean, yeah. his routine is insane. Yeah. It's simple stuff, but it's brilliant stuff. It's just brilliant stuff. Yeah. I mean, uh, a a so cop pulled me over and said, 
uh, you were going 70 miles per hour. And I told him that I wasn't planning on staying out that long. <laughs> I got a mansion with a circular driveway. Now I can't get my car off. <laughs> I like that he bought used paint in the shape of a house. That was my favorite. <laughs> they're, they're so It's so damn funny and so much his own thing. Yeah. And by the way, as we go into our first song, which is Little Green Bag from George Bear Selection. Yeah. Tarantino had all the songs planned out. Mm. And this is the Scorsese connection. Scorsese writes all the songs ahead of time. He knows what he's going to use. Wow. And that music kick, kicks in. And you were having fun in that opening scene. And you were involved. And it was funny. And it was daring. And it made you laugh. When that music hits, and we go into this kind of step down slow motion shot which they did but it shot 12 frames a second so half the speed but then they duplicated every frame so that's what gives it that sort of jerky sort of slow motion thing you're like holy shit i'm in a movie here dude this is top five coolest scenes ever in a movie period period i still Go back and watch just this slow motion walk. And it's set to the most perfect song Seriously. that you can set this to. Yeah. It really is. I don't know many dudes who saw this scene and didn't want to be in it. And that's what makes it one of the top five coolest scenes ever. And, you know, you just bought this soundtrack after you saw the movie. A hundred percent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. So the soundtrack, uh, one of the things the people producing the soundtrack didn't want that Quentin did want was dialogue from the movie, Stephen Wright mm. lines and other lines from the film. And they're like, absolutely no one, you can't do this. That's part of what makes the soundtrack so great. Yeah. Is it puts you back in the film. Yeah. The apocalypse now soundtrack is like that, which I I'm very, it's a double CD, but it's got the dialogue from the movie and the monologues. I would, I wouldn't own it without those dialogues uh, and monologues. The animal house soundtrack was the same. Oh, that's like right. That's had those, right. That stuff in it. So then we go from this unbelievably cool moment where we see all the characters walking in the slow-mo, and then we're in the black, and we hear screaming. I'm going to die. Just hold on, buddy boy. I'm going to die. And we cut. We had this fun scene in the diner, super, super cool slow-motion walk, and then we cut into one of the most intense literally visceral scenes in film history, I think. John, I mean, had you ever seen uh, blood like that on the back seat of this car and a guy, and he's just rolling in it, uh, screaming and kicking <laughs> the windows yeah. and the, I mean, just the blocking of this scene alone. And then yes. Kaitel's in the, in the front seat, holding his hand, his bloody hand, just, I mean, so visceral and so genius. I mean, know? Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway had 400 shots put in and weren't even that bloody. And you see this, all this blood from one gunshot wound. And again, this is Tarantino doing reality, a heightened reality, as Steve pointed out in the dialogue. But heightened dialogue, and this is also heightened reality, right? This, this you're seeing what an actual gut shot would be. 
Yep. Eddie Murphy used to have that hilarious bit. Like in the movies, you get shot. It's like, ah, go on without me. But in real life, if you were to get shot, you'd be, don't you leave me, motherfucker. You know, it's that kind of feeling because like it scares the shit out of you to be shot. And you see Tim Roth, who had just been this like cool dude at the table, now almost squealing from the pain out of pure, utter fear. Because when you put it in context later, if you watch the movie, he's a young guy. This is his first undercover job. And yeah. here he is glimpsing his death so quickly in the situation. So all of that is running through him. And then these this just uh, blanket of blood on his body to once again uh, kind of break through this idea of 80s, 80s being shot, which is you barely saw any blood to like show you what it really was like if you were to get a shot in a situation like this. so And any like, other director, any other director, John, yeah. would be would not have him kicking. Yes, and right. The, the kicking, you know, they, you just kind of be laying there in a pool of blood, right, Steve? Right. You yeah. know, I mean, but just Tarantino's creativity is he's freaking kicking and pounding and screaming and going berserk. It's fucking great, man. Yeah. There, there are all sorts of scenes that I feel emotionally there are very few scenes that I feel f- almost physically mm-hmm. like I feel Tim Roth's pain. Like it feel I, this seems like this is one of the clearest images of agony I've ever, and fear and just raw emotion. And yep. man, you yep. got to give it up for Tim Roth and Keitel in this scene. Yeah. What they, it all feels so real. That he's in that moment of, yeah. I'm going to die and total panic. And he doesn't hold back at all. I mean, he's just going. And man, Kaitel trying. And you could tell I am trying to calm this guy down. I would think Kaitel believes he's probably going to, he is going to die. But he's telling, you know, he's telling him the truth. And just the, the, the logic of. Excuse me, I didn't realize you had a degree in medicine. Uh, uh, are you a doctor? <laughs> so, if you're through giving me your amateur opinion. Slide back and listen to the news. I'm taking you back to the rendezvous. Joe's going to get you a doctor. The doctor's going to fix you up. And you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Please say the fucking words. <laughs> say it. Oh, okay, Larry. Correct. Correct. It's the worst bedside manner ever. <laughs> like, really. <laughs> Well, and again, and to be really clear, if you have, you know, obviously we're spoiling the whole movie. So if you haven't seen this movie, I don't know why you're listening to this. But if you're watching this the first time, we saw some people in a diner talking about Madonna and address books and songs and tipping. And then we see this guy covered in blood and agony. We have no fucking idea what happened. Mm. We there's no you're like, I have no idea what's going on at all. So. Tarantino said to his DP, said to his DP, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to just kind of drift from Tim Roth in the backseat over to Keitel and back and just do it whenever you feel like you should do it. And the DP was like, absolutely not. There's no way. That's an unmotivated camera move. That was when I was in film school. They said I shouldn't do that. The camera moves should always be motivated. You shouldn't notice the camera. And Tarantino's like, this is what I want you to do. And what he discovered was he found a rhythm like his, his body did know who to be shooting when. And later on in the scene, they do go into coverage. But at the first part, it's just this sort of camera roving where it wants to go and seeing what it wants to see. 
I need to take a look at that. I don't think I remember that. And then another like hard cut to the door being kicked open. And we go into uh, the warehouse. Uh, by the way, when that door gets kicked open by Mr. White, you can see the generator very clearly on the left side of the door when it opens for <laughs> a second. But, you know, when you got a low budget movie, you you, often, you can't do take two. You know, this is the take that works. This warehouse, by the, all of this was shot. It's so funny because I didn't live in L.A. when I saw this movie. Almost all of this was shot in like Eagle Rock and Highland Park. And I live in Echo Park. So it's like I'm there all the time. Like this whole neighborhood is exactly where I'm hanging out a lot. And it's in this old used mortuary. There were many coffins stored there as they were shooting. There's that big thing under a sheet. That's a big hearse under plastic that Mr. Blonde will sit on later. And there was big gallon tanks, you know, 50 gallon tanks of embalming fluid sitting around as they're making this movie. Who's a tough guy? Come on, who's a tough guy? I'm a tough guy. Who's a tough guy? One thing we should point out is that uh, Mr. Orange, Tim Roth, is calling him Larry. Mm. Right. And the camera circles around. And Larry looks at Mr. Orange's belly, and I think it probably looks real bad. Mm-hmm. And I love the moment where he asks him to hold me. Larry, I'm fucking scared, man. Please hold me. And watching Kaitel get his body around Mr. Orange and pull his head into his lap, and it's so... We've had this intense violence and fear, and it's so tender. And, and I wrote down here, Tim Roth is incredible. Yeah. That that floor, you know, I mean, he's laying on that floor. It's almost like, I don't know if you guys have ever put a dog down, you know, and they yeah. got him on the cool vet, cold vet floor or whatever, and they put him down, and there's just something wrong with it. And I just, I just, I, I, when I, when we did it to my dog, I got, I just held my dog, you know, as they did it, you know, and I don't, I don't mean to be comparing dogs to, to humans, but um, that's the one thing about this location is it is so cold and dark and it's such a criminal type jail that they're in, you know, which is, which is super cool. But to see Ross character just laying there, it's really like upsetting, you know, later on as he's just laying there dying. You know, well, and I think that the thing you bring up about the dog is is appropriate because, like, the moment where Kaitel combs his hair a little bit, like, straightens Tim Roth's hair a little bit, it's all so tender, you know. Yeah. yeah. And this is where we go. Okay, we saw him in the diner scene where he stood up for the waitresses, and now he's taking care of this wounded guy yeah and this is and again john this goes to what you were saying is it's the movie is seducing you mm-hmm. to admire mr white yeah yeah it's it's a fascinating situation with that and i think it's one of the greatest tricks tarantino's ever pulled with any of his characters because you're right like you're sitting there and you're watching him may, say the right things right and when the moment comes he actually defends his guy Against all odds, even shoots his boss, shoots, you know, gets shot himself. And when the cops come in, the school, there's just the scream of agony because he, I think there's a backstory with him that isn't shown in the movie where he is kind of tired of this life and he's slowly moving out of it. He just doesn't know how. 
the fact that he's like Mr. We're going to see in a little bit. Mr. Pink calls him out for almost trying to surrender his real name to Mr. Pink. That's a guy who's desperately trying to connect, who's desperately done with with living this life, and somehow find wants to find a way to make a human connection and get out and kind of just transition into some other existence. So that's why he keeps breaking these cardinal rules that he would never have broken as a young as a young thief yeah. criminal. But as an older criminal now, looking back, he's getting soft. He's soft. And so he's making these mistakes, you know, and I think that's what you are seduced by with him in this whole time, you know, even calling out Mr. Blonde, because I guarantee you there were some jobs where Mr. White probably shot some people straight up, didn't give a fuck how old they were, you know, and so when he was younger. But now that he's older, he has a different perspective, like we all do when we get older. Everything seems to change because you don't know that all that piss and vinegar you had when you were in your 20s and you have more perspective. And it seems like that's where he's at in his life right now, which is why he has so much affection for him um, in that moment. Because when he, if he was younger and the dude got shot, he'd be like, fuck it, man. I, I can't stay. I got to go. I, gotta, I can't get caught. You know, but right. It's much more and that's now. probably it's probably part of his back history is <clears throat> he yeah. didn't have children. You know, he didn't have children. Points. And, yeah. And, yeah. and this is like and this this kid has become a son to him. You know, and so when later when we see the betrayal, which we'll get to later, Steve, but I mean, Tim Roth is a son to him in this, you know, in many ways. I think, you know, when you go through an intense thing with a person, it's tough not to bond with them. You know, it's tough not to feel that sense of. Well, and my guess is that both of you have things where you did go through this stuff with someone and then it did end up in maybe not betrayal, but. No, oh, sure. that relationship not believe, being what you believed that it was. Mm-hmm. And that fucking hurts, you know? Yeah. Yep. Go ahead and be scared. You've been brave enough for one day. You're not going to fucking die. You're going to be fine. Joe gets here, I'll make you 100% again. Does he believe this? No. No. I agree. And then we saw... I. The, the whole cast is so fucking good. And we saw Tim Roth just do this insane thing in the car. Yeah. Just just huge. And now the calmness that he has when he talks to him in this this point, he goes, That's your heart for what she's trying to do. I was panicking for a minute back there. But I got my senses back now. Situation is I'm shot in the belly. Medical attention, I'm gonna die. Like he's very clear. Yeah. And Miss and Mr. White says, I can't take you to the hospital. Uh, uh David, I'm sure this is something you think about a lot too. Is that what's so great about that that combination is he says, I'm going to die. He says, I can't take you to the hospital. Is that the ask is implied? The ask is in the subtext. Mm. Is that by saying that, I'm asking you to take me to the hospital, but I didn't actually say that. And he responds to the subtext. Well, you know. and that's and that's part of the conflict here is, you know, if he didn't tell him his name, he could have. Yep. Right. You know, right. and I think later on when we see Buscemi, Buscemi would have been down with that. Yep. Right. He he actually suggests it. Okay, we can take him to well, the hospital. Blah blah. blah. No, and it's it not until he asks Kaitel, "Did you tell him your name?" And right, that's, right. Where he, that's where the whole situation gets fucked up. Exactly. I won't tell him anything, man. I won't tell him anything. I swear to fucking God, man. Is this true? Well, obviously he's undercover, so he, it's not true. 
No. Um, but I do want to ask you guys something because it struck me this time as I was watching those scenes. How much of this is real and how much of this is bullshit? And by that, I mean, he's legitimately shot. Oh, yeah. But the squealing and the crying, how much of it is actually him and how much of it is him undercover trying to keep Harvey Keitel close to him and next to him because that's his connective tissue to Joe. And what he tells the cop later after he gets his ear cut off is they're waiting. They're waiting until Joe shows up. So how much of what he's doing here in the wriggling around, the kicking and the screen, all of that, half of it is it for to keep Keitel sympathetic to him, therefore close to him, so that you know the contact to Joe doesn't go away. And how much of it is him legitimately experiencing the pain of getting shot in the stomach for the first time in his life? And it just struck I, me as I was watching it, as I, I was trying to find the moments. I, it's funny. I have always felt that that scene in the car is 100% real. Always mm-hmm. felt that. And now that you bring this up, what you just said is totally motivatable. But yeah. no, I've always felt this is this is the coalescence of the undercover cop and the character both completely fucking panicked and certain they're going to die in agony. That's how I've always felt about it. And you might have a point because remember later in the movie when he's talking to um, the the black guy who is his um, yeah. friend or, or his colleague who's teaching him all this stuff? Tim Roth um, starts to feel like says something about the guy that gave him the alibi or gave him the, mm. the approval. And the black guy's like, no, this guy's not your fucking friend. He's a, he's yeah. a criminal. He's a low life. Who's given up his other friends. That's the guy you think is so cool. So right. he has a propensity to like the criminals or to find the good. In oh, people, definitely. Just like Kaitel has. So this may be an authentic interaction between the two uh, uh, interactions between the two of them. But I just was thinking, wow, how, if he's undercover here, is he playing it up a little bit? Because he I knows think, that I tell his characters a little Well, you bring up a great point. Both of you guys do. And I mm. think that once he asks him to hold him, then he's playing the con. Yeah. Then he's, mm. this is where he's buttering up dad. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. daddy, daddy, take me to the fucking hospital. I don't want to die. I know that you're not going to take me to the hospital, but I got to give him my best shot. So, so this is why, so I know I said this comment and, and, and maybe, and I think you had a reaction to it, John, of like me not feeling that in general Tarantino is deep is Mm. that I don't see him as a deep, this, what we're talking, this is, I think Reservoir Dogs is his deepest film. Yes. And this Uh. is, this is what this, cause I don't actually see it the way each of us see this moment differently. And that's where the debt is like, Oh, what is going on? What is the truth? Cause for me, when he says, hold me, that again, I find that to be totally sincere. This is a person knows he's going to die, really scared, needs human touch. I've always felt it, but it's perfectly interpreted, could be interpreted the other way. Yeah. And, and, and the thing, too, is I go again to this question of when he says, I swear to fucking God, I'm not going to, I won't tell them anything. Yeah. I think there's a moment where he's going, okay, they know I'm a cop, but I'm, I'm never going to say the name Larry. I'm just not going to. I'm going to pretend that I never heard that in order to honor this person that's going to save his life. Right. You know, it also goes to, because the other thing this goes to is the moment of the end when he finally tells Larry, I'm a cop Hmm. and what that is and what that comes from and what, because we, you know, it's about what Mr. White thought his relationship with Mr. Orange is. And it's about what Mr. Orange thought his relationship with Mr. White was, you know, 
and what the layers of betrayal are. You're not going to fucking die, kid, all right? Listen to me. You're going to be fine. Along with the kneecap, the gut is the most painful area a guy can get shot in. <laughs> okay, I wanted to, because I have thoughts about this line too. I wanted both of you started laughing when I said that line. What is it about that line? I mean, it is just awesome. I mean, yeah. has he been shot in the kneecap? Apparently, Army Guy tells him <laughs> shot in the kneecap. You know? What's that I mean, like? He was just telling. Uh, you know, that uh, Tim Roth that, you know, are you a doctor? I don't think so. I don't see a medical <laughs> license. But here he is pontificating <laughs> on where the, mo- the most painful places to get shot are. But I imagine the guy who mentored him in this life told him that bullshit because the guy before him told him that bullshit. So it's just something he's passing on in this moment to Tim Roth. Who essentially is mentoring. What, what I find funny about it is me as a 25 year old or whatever I was when I first saw this movie went, oh yeah, okay, I guess that's true. Yeah, this is the cap of the guy, yeah. <laughs> it was only years later that I went, what? that's not fun. How do we fucking, t-? and this is the thing about Tarantino is that yeah. Tarantino is, is one of the most disinterested in reality filmmakers I know. He's interested in movies. Mm-hmm. He's not interested in what, how things actually work. He's interested in how they work in movies, and in this movie, this is the truth. (laughs) Shit. But it takes a long time to die from it. I'm talking days. And then, enter Mr. Pink. It's not a fucking setup or what? (laughs) Everything about uh, what Buscemi does and this scene coming up is just so good. He comes in with such energy. Shit. Orange got tagged. Good shot. Fuck. Where's the brown? Good. And I love, by the way, and this is, again, you know, it's it's a writing thing, it's a directing thing, it's an acting thing, is that you want to have different energy levels in your scene. And so we have Orange, who's literally on the ground, no energy. You have Buscemi, who's bubbling with intense nervous energy. And now Cocktail is calm. He's calm. And feels very solid. How did he die? How the fuck do you think? The cop shot this is bad. So fucking bad. Is it bad? I love Kaitel says, as opposed to good. <laughs> I say that line all the time to my kids. <laughs> you really think we were set up? Do you even doubt it, man? I don't think we got set up. I know we got set up. I mean, really, seriously, where did all those cops come from, huh? One minute they're not there, and the next minute they're there? I didn't hear any sirens. Again, this is why it's so brilliant that we didn't see the robbery. Yep, is yep. now they're going to construct it together and try to figure out what happened. And because they don't have the same exact memory of what happened and their memories aren't clear, it gives us a sense of how chaotic and crazed and adrenaline-filled that robbery was. Oh, yeah. The alarm went off, okay? When an alarm goes off, you got an average of four minutes response time. Unless a patrol car is cruising that street at that particular moment, you got four minutes before they can realistically respond. And in one minute, there were 17 blue boys out there, all one of a bear, all knowing exactly what the fuck they were doing. They were all just there. So, obviously, there was an undercover cop with them. <laughs> were all those 17 blue boys waiting outside to come in because Mr. Orange is an undercover cop? Yes, 100%. This was all planned out. Just like he says, the cops are outside waiting until Joe shows up to come crash the... The warehouse area. He knew that those guys were gonna were gonna be were out there, waiting uh, uh, until something happened. 
you know, because they were there to catch Joe. So I don't and- like 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 Buscemi says, they didn't show up till Mr. Blonde started shooting. That's they correct. weren't going to show up until Mr. Blonde started shooting. Then when real lives were at stake, they had to go in and try to stop him and what ha- or stop them rather and what have you. But yeah, they were not gonna they were gonna let him get away with the robbery. They were gonna follow them to the warehouse. And as soon as Joe showed up, all those cops that were waiting outside the jewelry store were going to be right there outside that factory or uh, warehouse rather and uh, storm it and take Joe and everybody involved in it. So this is where this is a uh, a nitpick that I don't actually think makes sense. It has not, this is not like a criticism of the movie because movies are really hard to write. But this is not consistent with at the end, the idea that the cops are all waiting outside while people are being tortured and, you know, a cop has gasoline poured on him and Mr. Orange is bleeding to wait for Joe to show up. If they well, came in when Mr. Blonde well, started shooting, then why didn't they come in when the cop got shot? Because, because the they cop- didn't know. Because they didn't know. Because oh, uh, there's no there's right. no gunshots. Right. There was no gunshots. The How would they know that the cop got his ear cut off? Gunshots. Right. How That's would they it. know that a guy gasoline poured on him? They wouldn't know because they weren't. They're not inside the room. Yes, but if they're watching the place, not not they, watching through the windows, they're just watching outside. Yeah, but the place. they 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 saw Mister Orange come in with a, right. all bloody. They saw them drag a cop who is tied up out of the trunk mm-hmm. of a car. Sure. They saw him go back to the car with gasoline. And right. then we saw nice guy. They heard nice guy Eddie shoot yeah. the cop and they still haven't come in. Right. I would that's, say it's not consistent. That's you, true. Let's, okay, go ahead, go ahead. That's true. That's right. Well, no, You're right. I don't, I, I think it is consistent. Cops are cops. The, 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 when you become a police officer, sacrificing your life is sometimes part of the situation for the overall sure. greater good. I and agree. In their minds, I agree in Tim Ross case, but once they brought that uniform dude in there yeah. and he's all yeah. tied up, that's when you go, fuck it. We have our own, we have a badge here, you know, never leave a blue guy behind, you know, let's go in now. Well, you, you know, screw, I think Steve, I think Steve wins that argument a little bit better than us. Well, uh, well unless, unless like they were told not to go in. Do you know what I'm saying? Like at the co- the blue, I think the obviously the boys in blue would go in one of their own is is being tortured, but he clearly knew that you know there, there was a whole operation going on, even though he lied to Mr. Right. Blonde. He didn't know the level to the operation because Orange has to tell him the cops are outside and they're waiting for Joe to show up. But I bet the boys in blue wanted to raid the factory, but the high or the warehouse area, but the right. higher ups were like, nobody fucking move. Nobody Wait fucking moved. Wait for yeah, Joe. We're waiting for Joe. Nobody fucking moved. So I think you're right, Steve, in that it would make sense that they would go in, but it also makes sense that the higher-ups would be like, they'll sacrifice one of the guys to get Joe because they want the bigger fish. Well, and this is also where I go like, obviously, you know, you know me long enough. I want mm-hmm. things to make sense. Clarity is very important in the way that I see stories. It isn't the most important thing. Mm-hmm. The most important thing is that the story is working emotionally and right. there is no fucking question that this and there's ambiguity about what the fuck is going on. Yeah, right. We actually exactly. don't we don't know what we don't know if there are maybe they're not cops outside. Right. Well, we, well, no we know at the very end that they show up, but we don't right. know when. Right. One interesting thing about what's going on in the scene that I hadn't noticed until watching it this last time is that Mr. Orange pulls his gun out. Yes. As soon as they start talking about or Buscemi starts talking about Mr. Pink starts talking about. Who was undercover? Who is who is the guy that screwed us? Who's blah blah blah? You see him subtly pull his gun out because he thinks 
if they're going to turn on him, he's going to try in some way to defend himself. So again, I it's these little things that. that actors do that are so smart in their portrayals. You know? Yeah, I never noticed that. I wasn't even going to come here. I was going to drive, just drive off, man, because whoever said something knows about this place. They're going to be cops here waiting for us, man. They're going to be cops coming here right now. And I love, by the way, the way this is shot. I mean, obviously it's low budget. They don't have a lot of money to do a lot of coverage. It's really like a stage play. We're in a, we're in wide shots a lot of the time. The the lighting is general so that actors can move where they want to move. Like you don't have to have like this. You've got to be in this one spot. There's a lot of room for it, and it totally works. Let's go in the other room. Cut to the scene in the bathroom, and Tarantino stays in this shot, looking down the hallway where we're only seeing Kaitel for a really long time. Fuck, am I doing here, man? You know what I felt funny about this job right off? As soon as I felt that, I should have said no, thank you, and walked. But I didn't fucking listen. We hear this a couple of times about uh, trusting your instincts. You know, you knew something was wrong. <laughs> I would have never gone back to that warehouse, you know, because he has the diamonds. Yeah, right. And yep. I would have, I would have just gotten away and gone somewhere quick and called Joe or something like that. I mean, especially if, you know, boom, the cops are on you in less than a minute. Yeah, you know, because you know, I mean, he he's walking into the hornet's nest. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And Kaitel has got all the calm now, and he says, "Son is back. Need you cool. Are you cool?" We hear him do something. I think he like hits the wall or hits a a locker or something. He says, "I am cool." I love the moment too, where he goes, offers a cigarette. Busemi says, "I quit." All right. Why you got one? <laughs> and then we move into like a 50 50 shot um and the, and now we're going to go over what's happened and uh and john has heard me talk many times before you know in teaching film school that i have actor i see scenes with actors and actors pull scenes that they're going to do these are student actors who are often less than stellar and this <laughs> scene was in the rotation i don't know what acting teacher would hand this oh. scene and he would hand it to people, and it just hurts so much mm-hmm. to watch weak actors who don't understand uh, what's happening in the fucking scene. So I saw this scene over and over again, and I'm telling you, watching Buscemi and Kaitel do it is a lot better <laughs> than watching student actors do it. Let's go through what happened. Okay. We're in the place, everything's going fine. Then the alarm gets tripped. I turn around, and all these cops are outside. You're right, President. Damn, I blink my eyes and they're there. And then this moment is so great. And Mr. Blonde starts to shoot all the info. That's not correct. Mm. <laughs> and now we go over it again. What's wrong? Okay. The cops did not show up after the alarm went off. Right? The cops didn't show up until after Mr. Blonde started shooting everybody. And what's so great about this is as they're trying to reconstruct what happens, we, the audience, are constructing what happened. Yeah. Right. You know? Because this is the first time we hear about Mr. Blonde shooting everybody. As soon as I heard the alarm, I saw the no, cops. Man, I'm telling you, it wasn't that soon, okay? They didn't, they didn't let their presence be known until after Mr. Blonde became a madman, all right? I'm not saying they weren't there. I'm saying they were there. But they didn't make it, they didn't move until after Mr. Blonde started shooting everybody. And so to be clear, what it sounds like happened, the alarm went off. There are all these, under, these cops part of this undercover sting operation, and they're not doing anything. And then Mr. Blonde gets pissed because of setting the alarm off and starts shooting. The most amazing thing about this, though, is just the acting, Steve. You, you know, you said it was like a play. 
And John, I know you'll agree. I mean, what Buscemi and Keitel do here, it's it's at the time, we hadn't I hadn't seen anything like this. Mm, no. You know, just the the level of intensity. There's so much little stuff going on here with the lighter and the cigarette and why you got one and reconstructing it. And they're in this shitty fucking bathroom or wherever it is, but it's such a great location, you know, and there's like a single chair there or something and Buscemi's pacing and it's just, it's, it's, it's an amazing scene. You know, it's it's the course of the conversation in the scene. Right. And that's what's going back and forth here because you know, Kaitel is dealing with the stuff with with um, Tim Roth and Wishami comes in and he is just like wired. And we find out later why, because he's been hit by a fucking car. He's stolen a car. <laughs> he's shot cops and he's driven like a madman to get to this uh, warehouse, in essence. So he's wired and he is just storming and just talking. And he knows it's a setup. He, he knows it's a setup. He- and he's right. He's a hundred percent. That's the crazy thing about him. He's a hundred percent fucking right. This cheap son of a bitch. He is absolutely right about everything. He's yep. the one that's acting like a professional. As you guys said, yep. he's yep. the one that knows that the fix is in. He just doesn't have the clout to make stuff happen. If this had been Harvey Keitel with this kind of motivation and impulse and all this kind of stuff, it'd be a completely different scenario, but because it's him and he doesn't have status within the group of the guys, it's just, it's falling on deaf ears in terms of action. And so he has to kind of try to get people to understand where he's coming from. And so you see the progression of this conversation in the, in the bathroom where he convinces Kaitel eventually that there is someone there, you know, right. that there's someone exactly. Uh, after, I, I, th- I love that line. I don't know if it's in this scene or later when they're out, when they're out in the, by um, Tim Roth, when he says, fuck that man. I just, someone's got a red hot poker up our ass and I want to know whose name is on the handle. That's a fucking great line. And to be clear, what they establish is it's because Mr. Blonde started shooting the yes. cops game in. Yeah. And that that's what proves that this is a setup. They didn't come in for the alarm. They did right. come in. And and this is persuasive. Come on, Mr. White. I mean, you can, you can see look, that. Look, look. Enough was Mr. White shit. Oh, wait, 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 man. Don't, don't tell me your fucking name, man. I don't want to know it. Jesus Christ, I ain't going to tell you mine. <laughs> and this is why he's the professional. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and again, such good acting. Kaitel looks at Buscemi again, and you could see the thoughts in his mind of like, how do I know that you're not the cop? Yeah. Because he says in a suspicious tone. How did you get out? I shot my way out. Everybody started shooting, so I blasted my way out of there. And again, we have this, this is these hard cuts from a dialogue scene into intense action. There's an alarm sound, there's screaming, and Buscemi is running full speed left to right as we're tracking with him. And he crashes through people, and cops are coming after him. And the cop in the middle is producer Lawrence Bender. (laughs) He gets hit by a car, breaks through a window, rips a woman out of the car, fires at the cops, unloads a ton of ammunition on them, and they fire on him. It's a thrilling, exciting scene. Yeah, it is. And he shoots cops. You see it. He shoots. Like, you see him shoot one of them uh, initially. And then you see from behind the cops when he shoots the older cop so that when he speeds off and you see that one cop running behind him, the younger cop shooting and shit, that is such a powerful scene because you can sense the anger and rage of that one cop because he's just seen his two colleagues get shot right next to him. You know, it's, it's, 
he ups the emotional stakes here in that interaction. After we've just kind of connected with Mr. Pink, now we're showing the ferocity and the actual don't give a fuck about anybody else approach that Mr. Pink has. Well, and that's kind of a common theme of this movie is these guys would rather die than go to jail. Yeah. And then I love, you know, once again, just getting back to sort of, I haven't even seen Scorsese do it, just the way, and I think we mentioned this earlier, is just the way Buscemi shoots that gun and the way the bullets come out of the gun and the, mm. the actual violence of it. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before, you know, just he's literally shooting, he's emptying 15 or 16, 17 bullets or whatever, just reckless, you know, anything to save his hide, anything not to go back to jail. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and he saves his hide. Did you kill anybody? A few cops. And this is the line that you mentioned before. No real people? Just cops. <laughs> and what, what's interesting is like, that is a, in a cool noir way, oh, listen to these badass criminals kind of thing. Yeah. But later on, when you actually see Kaitel kill those cops and he shoots through that front windshield oh. into that car and see how brutal and horrible it is, this is to your point, John, of like, hmm. no, these are bad guys. Yeah. These are horrible people. Yeah. Yeah. Now I don't want to kill anybody. If I got to get out that door and you're standing in my way, one way or the other, you're getting out of my way. That's the way I look at it. And then we start talking about Mr. Blonde. But I ain't no madman either. What the fuck was Joe thinking? Can't work with a guy like that. We're awful goddamn lucky he didn't tag us when he shot the place up. I came this close to taking his ass out myself. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, that uh, Kaitel thought about killing Blonde? 100%. Yeah. I think 100%. I agree. Because it's, at that point, it's kill or be killed. And I'm sure he felt if one of those bullets gets... Uh, Closer to me, I'm going to shoot this motherfucker right now. You know, and also I think it's part of his character. You know, he's this emotional. He's the emotional mother group of the group. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And he doesn't care. You know who you are. You know, I mean, he loves Tim Roth, and he's saying his name, and and right. and he's, but he's not being smart. You know, maybe it's not a smart thing to do. You know, Kaitel is yeah. really operating out of a lot of emotion and feelings in this movie. Yeah. What's interesting, and it's and I'm thinking more and more as you're both talking about it, is that he probably places the highest value on loyalty, you know, on this camaraderie of this group. And Mr. Blonde is a violator of that because he's a madman. You can't trust a madman. Right. And yet what he is going to do in the end is shoot the guy he should be most loyal to. Yeah. Which is Joe. Yeah. Right. And I, I love Buscemi here. I mean, everybody panics. Everybody. Things get tense. It's human nature. You panic. I don't care what your name is. You can't help it. Fuck, man. You panic on the inside. In your head, you know? Because what I go is like, man, Buscemi's really, he's been around. He actually... Is, is the big, again, I'll just say it again. He's the most professional. And you give yourself a couple of seconds, you get a you get a hold of the situation, you deal with it. What you don't do is start shooting up the place and start killing people. No, what you're supposed to do is act like a fucking professional. Psychopath ain't a professional. And then this is that line you mentioned before. I mean, Jesus Christ, how old do you think that black girl was? 20? Maybe 21? If that. So she could have been 15. But, you know, he, he just... You paint, you paint 
what's going on in that jewelry store. You know, he's he's doing Michelangelo right now, and it's so visual. Absolutely. You 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 you. It's funny, um, uh, David. Have you read uh, Stephen King's On Writing? No. Tell me uh, about it. So I think it's one of the best books ever written on writing on the process of writing. Have you read it? You've read it, John, I think. Yeah. Yeah. When I was like 20 years in my twenties, I remember. Oh my God. Okay, I'll read it. I'll read it. It's like half, half biography and then half mm-hmm. him talking about writing. And he has this whole thing he talks about that. He thinks that writing is both telepathic and time travel because he, you can have ideas in your head that you put down on paper and someone can read that 200 years later, a thousand years later, and be seeing the thoughts that you had in your mind a thousand years before. So true. That is what's happening with this robbery, I think, is that without us ever seeing it, Tarantino is manufacturing the thoughts in our head, the vision in our head of what that scene was, yeah. you know? And they're speculating about what happened What happened to Mr. Blonde and Mr. Blue. We don't know what happened to them. You think it's possible one of them got a hold of diamonds and... No, no way. Give yourself a shoe. I got the diamonds. And this is where we find out that he stashed them. Look, if you want to come with me, let's go get them right now. Right this second, man. Because I think uh, staying here, man, we should have our fucking heads examined. And this is, again, this is the tension of the whole thing of we don't know what happened. We don't know who turned us in. And although watching it the second time, of course, we know that Mr. Orange is the undercover cop. But watching it the first time, you don't. So who's the rat this time? Mr. Blue? Mr. Brown? (laughs) Joe? You know, listen, I mean, Joe set this whole thing up. Maybe he set it up to sell it. I don't buy it. Now we're speculating on who could the rat be. Me and Joe go back a long time. I can tell you definitely, Joe don't know a fucking thing about this bullshit. And of course, you can't tell definitely because you don't know. And that is what Buscemi will now explode, what Mr. Pink will now explode. Hey, look, I've known Joe since I was a kid, okay? And me saying he definitely had nothing to do with it is ridiculous. I mean, I can say I definitely didn't do it because I know what I did or I didn't do. But I cannot definitely say that about anybody else because I don't definitely know. Yes. I love, it's such good dialogue, man. The repetitions of definitely and the, the vowel sounds and the rhythm of it. Ah, oh, so good. It's great. For all I know, you're the rat. And I love this too, because that that hurts Mr. White. That is offensive <laughs> to him to say that. For all I know, you're the fucking rat. And him getting angry and saying, for all I know, you're the rat and Mr. Pink makes Mr. Pink happy. <laughs> all right, now you're using your fucking head. <laughs> I think you make a great point too, Steve, because like, you just mentioned how Mr. White really values loyalty. The fact that anyone would question him being undercover is an, yeah. is an offense to him, you know? So, yeah. And, and then, and then in this moment of like, now we're, we're really talking about the thing that we don't know. He turns and points at Mr. Orange and says, before we know he's the rat, he solved the movie in 20 minutes. He solved the yep. movie in 20 minutes. Did Mr. Pink. And can you tell us what's his response? He says, Hey, that kid in there was dying from a fucking bullet. I saw him take. So don't you be calling him a rat. That has nothing to do with anything. Right. You know, he's operating out of sheer emotion because he loves this kid, but he's not thinking clearly. And after he defends this person who he doesn't know just because he took a bullet, uh, Mr. Pink heads off to the bathroom. We're alone with Mr. White. And then we cut to this other scene. And here's the thing I learned from listening to Quentin Tarantino talk about this, which is that I would have always said this is a flashback. And Tarantino says, this is not a flashback. A flashback is where somebody thinks about a thing 
in the past, and then we see the thing that they're thinking about. They are flashing back to a specific time. This oh. is a nonlinear story. <laughs> Mr. White isn't thinking about this moment, and that's why this we see this. It's because he has shuffled the deck and is telling the story in the order he wants to tell it, which isn't linear. That's right. correct, because if it was a flashback, you wouldn't see the thing pop up of Mr. White. Right. Because... Yep. You would not be thinking of that card shooting up. <laughs> and we go back to Mr. White talking to Joe sometime in the past. And they're talking about old times and jobs that, that he pulled and who his partner was. And by the way, his partner, Alabama, that's the character from True Romance. That's Patricia Arquette. Oh. So just a little tidbit. In the original script for True Romance, Clarence dies at the end. Hmm. So Alabama goes on with the baby and whatever. But of course, Tony Scott, not one to do a Tarantino movie necessarily, doesn't have that happen. So this is a little nonlinear stuff that Tarantino has talked about. Because Alabama, essentially, in his mind, when Clarence dies, she turns to a life of crime to deal with the grief and the sadness of it all. Because she glimpsed love and could never had had it taken from her. So she was just going to go become a criminal and live her life and be that in sadness. So that's what um, she does with her life, um, which mm. is who he's referencing in that moment. Five-man job. Busted in and busted out of a diamond wholesalers. Can you move the ice afterwards? I don't know nobody that can move ice. No problem. We got guys waiting for it. Hey, what happened to Marcellus Spivey? Didn't he always move your ice? Marcellus is a name that pops up in Tarantino movies, too. Yeah, this is Marcellus Spivey. Marcellus Wallace is in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. <laughs> What's the exposure like? Two minutes tops, but it's a tough two minutes. Daylight during business hours, dealing with the crowd. But you'll have the guys to deal with the crowd. How many employees? I'd say around 20. Security pretty lax. They most usually just deal in boxes. But on this particular day, they're getting a shipment of polished stones from Israel. So again, now we filled in more of what we did, of what the job is. Yeah. They get picked up the next day and sent to Vermont. No, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> What's the cut, Papa? Juicy, Junior. Real juicy. Real juicy. Oh, So good. I say that all the time. I say that <laughs> all the fucking time. What's the cut, Papa? Juicy, Junior. Real juicy. Juicy. I don't know who has the gravelliest voice in all of Hollywood, but Lawrence Tierney in this movie is <laughs> very close, way up there. Uh, we're back with Mr. Pink, who sees uh, White bending over orange and asks, What are we going to do, man? We can't take him to a hospital. Without medical attention, the man might not live through the night. The bullet in his belly is my fault. Now, while that might not mean jack shit to you, it means a hell of a lot to me. It's so funny how seductive his is quote-unquote honor is, yeah. you know? Before you got here, Mr. Orange was asking me to take him to a doctor or a hospital. And I don't like the idea of turning him over to the cops. But if we don't, he's going to die. And this is what you mentioned earlier, David, is that Mr. Pink's on board. He's like, okay, we mm -hmm. take him to a hospital. Since he don't know nothing about us, I say it's his decision. And there's this awkward pause. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think, again, me watching the first time, I picked up on the fact that he was calling him Larry, you know? Me neither. But now, yeah, but now you do, and he goes... Well, he knows a little about me. Why? Wait, wait, you didn't tell him your name, did you? I told him my first name and where I was from. <laughs> the exasperation. I think... Oh. 
Yeah. Buscemi is all of us who have dealt with exasperating people. Like, oh, <laughs> God damn it. Why? I told him where I was from a few days ago. It was just a natural conversation. It's such a mistake. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's such a mistake. We had just gotten away from the cops. He just got shot. It was my fault he got shot. I swear to God, I thought he was going to die right then and there. I'm trying to comfort him. And he asked me what my name was. I mean, the man was dying in my arms. His reaction here is so great because he knows he's wrong. He yep. knows he's wrong. Yes. That's why he's reacting so strongly at Mr. Pink because yep. Mr. Pink is correctly calling out his mistake. And that's why he's yelling and, you know, being aggressive towards him because he's right. And he hates that. What the fuck was I supposed to do? Tell him I'm sorry? I can't give out that fucking information. It's against the rules. Or maybe I should have, but I couldn't. Uh, and I think that Mr. White is right. He's not right in terms of he shouldn't have told him his name. But he is right that he was in life and death shit with this guy who was, you know, scared, who he's trying to comfort. And, and Buscemi says, yeah, I'm sure it was a very beautiful scene between you. <laughs> Oh, I love that line. Don't fucking patronize me. Question for you: Do they have a sheet on you where you're from? Yeah. Well, that's that then, man. I mean, Jesus Christ! I was worried about most of possibilities as it was. Now he knows. Hey, your name B, what you look like C, where you're from, and D, what your specialty is. They're not gonna have to show him a hell of a lot of pictures for him to pick you out. You know, one of the signs of good writing that I can tell <laughs> when we do the show. So I say a lot of the lines. Sometimes I just say the lines. Sometimes I cannot help starting to act the lines as I say them. These lines, man, they just they just force you to say them. You know, I'm sure you've experienced so many times with just just saying good dialogue. Oh, sure. Bring stuff out of you. You can't help it. Yeah. I mean, on that point, though, real quick, Steve, is just the dialogue. And um, it's so gritty. Um, do they have a sheet on you? Know your name, know where you're from. Well, then that's that, you know, they're not going to have, you know, to choose from a lineup. I mean, just as intelligent, these criminals know the system so well and what they can give away and not give away. And they know that people will turn them in in a heartbeat to save their own asses because there is no loyalty Amongst yeah, the, just the authenticity you know. of these guys. You know, they're just hardened criminals. You're so right, John. And, and I love, too, that Mr. Pink can't help poking the bear. You know what I mean? Like, he can't, once he gets, you know, riled up, he can't really stop. He goes, I mean, that's it, right? You didn't tell me anything else. I can narrow down the selection. And Kaitel Dangerous goes, If I have to tell you again to back off, me, you're going to go round and round. We ain't taking him to a hospital. We know he's going to die. And I'm very sad about that, but some fellas are lucky and some ain't. And again, I just keep going like, he's right. From that world, in that perspective, Oh yeah, he's he's right. And Kaitel grabs him. What the fuck you touching me for, man? And then I love just the total disrespect of just kind of kicking him around the room. You know what I mean? Standing over him. Because he sees him, like just like Chris Penn ignoring him yep. in the opening. This is the status. He's low, low man on the totem pole in essence. Plus, he's got that kind of whiny voice. Yep. So you know, dudes, dudes sometimes don't have respect with people for people with whiny voices. So, and plus, he's like skinny and all and of his that. Name, his name's Mister Pink. And this was Mister Pink, exactly. <laughs> so there's yeah. just all that whole thing. 
And so, you know, go and, and, and to bring up something that um, David mentioned earlier, the sound of the bullets as they're coming out of his gun shooting the cops, the sound of the fist punch here. This is not a bat on a bunch of leather jackets like Indiana Jones. This is a real yeah. solid punch that you can yeah. hear in Foley that makes it feel more real and brutal when he's when he punches him that quickly and then the kicking and him sprawling around on the ground like that until eventually he's had enough and pulls out the only thing he can use in that moment which is his gun well and they both pull and they're both aiming at each other and it's a um david you mentioned earlier about just the way that uh buscemi was firing the gun and the way the bullets moved and all that stuff this is because tarantino had watched john woo movies yeah this two guys pointing guns at each other you know this is straight out of john woo want to shoot me you little piece of shit Go ahead, take a shot. Fuck you, White. I didn't create this situation. I'm dealing with it. You're acting like a first-year fucking thief. I'm acting like a professional. Can we get back to the kicking a little bit? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) It goes back to the blocking out of the scene, the kicking. It goes back to the backseat of the car with the blood Mm -hmm. and the little stuff, you know, just I have never seen – a kicking thing like that before. I mean, it's, if you watch it again, it's so well blocked out, you know, and just the producing of the gun. And then Kaitel's got his gun. Uh, uh, one instant nanosecond, he's got his out later. Just a quick draw. They're yeah, freaking yeah. cowboys, man. Yeah. I, it's funny. I keep thinking about what you said, John, about everything is set up in this movie to make Mr. Pink look lesser than. Yeah, his name is Mr. Pink. His voice, his yeah. his body type, his energy, all of these things make him look like, oh, this is the weakest person. Right. But there is, but in fact, in his behavior, there's nothing that says that at all. No, you know, I mean, he he's shot the, the strongest. Cop. He's the strongest. Shot the cops. Got out of there. Dragged that woman out of the car. Took the, the diamonds. Yeah. Stashed the diamonds, and he figured out that someone's fucked them over, and someone's uh, an uh, someone's a cop uh, on the inside. So he yep. he is just he's figured this whole thing out from every uh, every step of the way it's just he's not well respected so no one's going to listen to him and yeah. and i also think the kicking thing because i know david uh brought it up again this is yet another way that he is deconstructing this idea of the badass criminals do you know what i'm saying he's deconstructing it the kicking in the car with the blood is a very childlike maneuver. It, you know, you're being regressed back to being a little kid, kind of like Rabisi in Saving Private Ryan when he calls for his mom at the end there. It's like regressing back to trying to find a place of safety, and that was with his mom. And so here, him kicking uh, um, uh, Steve Buscemi on the ground, it's like a couple of kids on a playground who are just <laughs> like having a fight, right? And it, the guns are, in essence, their fists, and the kid just pulls out whatever to try to block it, and the other guy's like, go ahead, go ahead. So he takes these badass guys who've just murdered cops, by the way, and reduces them back to being on the playground because men are just overgrown children. So in that moment, you see it happening uh, between them, and which, of course, is the greatest shot in one of the greatest shots in the movie with them, the guns pointed at each other. He framed that so perfectly, Tarantino. And and now the guy on the ground who seems like the low status one is going to tear apart intellectually the higher status guy that's looking down at him. And what's going to happen during this is we have another unmotivated camera move, which is that for no particular reason that we can understand, the camera just starts pulling back. Yeah. <laughs> you looking at me like it's my fault? I didn't tell him my name. I didn't tell him where I was from. 
Shit, 15 minutes ago, you almost told me your name. Which is 100% true. Yes. And as the tension is building, as he's laying in on him, as these two guys who are obviously violent guys, obviously killers, are pointing their guns at each other, the camera, which has pulled back and back and back, has now suddenly revealed Michael Madsen, Mr. Blonde, with the sunglasses, drinking the soda, (laughs) watching the whole thing. And he says, you kids shouldn't play so rough. Somebody's going to start crying. (laughs) (laughs) It's so it's so perfect, right? Because here comes the older kid onto the playground to be like, that's enough. You two. Right. And I think at the moment that Mr. Blonde has appeared, it is time for us to end. Sadly, because I'm having a great time. Part one of our exploration of Reservoir Dogs. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think about the first half of this movie, because the first half of this movie is maybe the best thing next to the next half of this movie. (laughs) Um, And you can always visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for the Cinephiles. It's Cine underscore files on Twitter, Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. And you can also subscribe to the show on all the subscribing places. But the most important one, even if you're not an Apple person, if you have the time to go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, that would be a huge help. If you want to support the show and maybe ask some questions of our next big movie we could do, you could do that by going to patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can buy or stream not only Reservoir Dogs, but every Tarantino film and get his book all at cinephiles.net. And if you want to follow me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you want to get into the Star Trek animated series, you could check that out on Enterprise Incidents. Uh, John, how would they find you? Uh, yeah, you can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, uh, and my other podcasts, uh, the top 10 for the next few weeks before we wrap that podcast up, the Geek Buddies and the Hot Mic. They're all out there for you to enjoy. And Dave McKenna, I'm going to say, you know, it would be very strange for most of the audience to know that we've never met you in person. We've right. only had these conversations, and yet I feel like I've been talking movies with you my whole <laughs> life. It's so great to have you on the show. Loving it, boys. Loving it. It's great stuff. Um, and if people wanted to reach you via social media, and if they wanted to check out some of your work, how would they go about doing that? Oh, man. Um, I recently got on Twitter. I think I have like five followers. Um, I'm mostly on there for the news and sports and stuff like that. But I'm David McKenna screenwriter on Twitter and on Instagram. I Um, bet um, that we can guarantee we are going to double your followers. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Cinephiles fans out there. Let's 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 get him at least five more. Let's go. it's, It's pretty pathetic. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not really pushing for it too hard. I'm hope I'm on, I'm on the long-term plan. And is there anything out that you want to, to plug? You know what? I mean, one movie that I'm really proud of that, um, I did that, um, my son is in, um, it's, it's on Amazon and it came out during COVID. And so we didn't get the full release that we wanted, but, um, embattled with Steven Dorff was a movie that uh, I was my last movie. And I really want people to see that because I'm really proud of it. And I think it's really cool. And how often do you get to do a movie with your own son? And uh, that's my, that's my special needs son, Colin, who has Williams syndrome and uh, check it out guys. It's a great movie. Dwarf is amazing. And then Darren Mann, who's 
fantastic. I think he, Darren's on, I haven't seen it, but he's on 1823 um, with Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren. And Darren Mann is a hell of an actor and he's great in embattled. And then my son, uh, good movie guys. See it on Amazon. Three ninety nine. There you go. Check that out. And I think that is it for this week. And we will be back with Mr. McKenna for part two of our exploration of Reservoir Dogs right here on The Cinephiles. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.